going to tell you what I think about it, at least, if nothing else. <laughs> uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Mark 16, that's going to be where we'll be tonight, Mark 16. And I'll talk about those final verses in that chapter and what we should think about that. Um, as, you, as you get to Mark 16, uh, I will go ahead and just begin by giving you a background of where I'm coming from. I think it's useful to... Uh, expose biases when possible and I know I have some at this so I think it's only right for me to share the, the various uh, biases that I have with you. Uh, I grew up on the New King James so that's an important bias for me to reveal to you. The reason why is because if you have a New King James it's going to say in there when you get to this section that these are bracketed in this particular uh, that's Nestle a land in the UBS uh, which are take basically they take all the Greek manuscripts and they create a manuscript, if you will, that is the synthetic of all of them. So the Nestle Land and the U- UBS Fourth Edition uh, uh, mark these as not original. They are lacking in the Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So notice the New King James translator slant is everybody has it but two. <laughs> And if you've ever uh, grown up with this question or debate or heard anything about that, this is usually the primary way it's presented is, well, all the manuscripts have it except that these two oldest ones. And then typically what happens is the argument is those two older ones were corrupt. And so that's why it should be uh, included. And that's what I always heard. I heard a corruption about the Alexandrian text types yeah, the villainization of two scholars, Westcott and Hort, what they were trying to do was basically purge the Bible of things that we believe. They're horrible, evil men. Uh, and so that's usually how that's been laid out. So if you haven't heard any of that, kudos to you, good. <laughs> but that's kind of the, the typical play. Uh, and even when I moved here, there were some, some people who had like set me down and explained all this to me and how I needed to to reject all that kind of stuff. So uh, if you were here back in 2002, which would be probably about 10 of you, um, and I preached through the Gospel of Mark, I, at the end of that series, argued for the authenticity uh, of verses 9 through 20. So that's my bias, is that I came into Mark chapter 16 with the full expectation to argue to you with all fervor and zeal that this is authentic. So just to give you that awareness of my bias, I went into this with the full belief that verses 9 through 20 are authentic. I've preached it as authentic. I've used those passages over and over again and grew up on a new King James, which indicated its authenticity. So do you understand my bias? My bias is very much for this text in every way as I came into the study. So my challenge was, as I wanted to look at this again, was to do as much as I could to try to suppress that bias, even though I knew I was trying to prove essentially what I've always believed. I was going to be as fair as I could with this and try to figure out, okay, let's let's revisit this. I haven't looked at it since back in 2003 or four when I finished the Gospel of Mark, so it's been 14 years, Uh, so let's look at it again and see what I end up coming up with. I think it's interesting that 
In my expectation that your age and what Bible you grew up on probably gives you your bias into this study. For example, if you grew up on the King James, and if anybody's still using the King James, talk to me later, but if you're using the King James, you'll note when you get to verse 9, there's no marking. There's no footnote. There's no indicator. There is nothing. There's nothing to say that there is anything questionable about this text. And so you can understand then why when later translations came out and started saying there's a potential problem with this text, why you would have so many people going, wait, why are these new translations taking out my verses? Especially that was true in the churches of Christ because we want Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved and he who does not believe will be condemned. We want that verse. And so how dare you then use a translation that would either question it uh, or, or take it out. The American Standard, which came out in 1901, uh, note, had a footnote that said the two oldest manuscripts and some other authorities omit verse 9 to the end. Some other authorities have a different ending to the gospel. That's probably one of the first times anybody put something in a Bible that said, hey, wait a minute, this may not be as straightforward uh, as we thought. But the King James continued to dominate as the primary translation. And, and I would probably say it's not till the New American Standard, which uh, the first time comes out in around 1977. It gets revised in 95. Uh, comes along, and the New New American Standard is quite bold. If you have a New American Standard, you will note its footnote just simply says, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Well, that's a different perspective than the New King James that said, all the manuscripts have it except two. (laughs) The New American Standard says, all the later manuscripts are all adding it. <laughs> That's a totally different perspective, isn't it? Uh, and again, both of those kind of reveal the bias underneath them. The New King James is the bias of, hey, we've got thousands of manuscripts that have it, so it should be counted. The New American Standards bias is all the ones that have it are all later. And so it shouldn't be counted. And so that's what you're seeing in, in that distinction. Uh, If you have a New American Standard, you will note that there is actually the short ending that is appended at the very end. It's in a bracket at the very end of the text. And so that, again, is a very bold move after all the years of the King James just laying it out there as if it exists. And this is without question part of the text. The New American Standard comes along and challenges that and even shows what the short ending is. You'll understand what short ending and long ending means in just a minute. I'll explain that soon. Uh, If you're a Christian standard person, it says this in the footnote. Some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. And I think that's probably a fair way to say it if you're going to say it really quickly. The longer footnote at the bottom then says other manuscripts include 9 through 20 as a longer ending. The following shorter ending is found in some manuscripts between verses 8 and 9 and one manuscript after verse 8 of which omits verses 9 through 20. And if you have a Christian standard Bible and you look at the footnote after that, it then has in there all the different endings, which I say kudos to them for being willing to do that and show you, well, here's all the different endings that the manuscripts actually have. What I'm going to show you is that there's actually five. There are five different endings to the Gospel of Mark that we have in manuscripts. 
So it makes it kind of muddy trying to determine, okay, well, how should we go about looking at that? So that's how the Christian Standard Bible, which just recently came out just a couple of years ago. Uh, English Standard Version, the one that I primarily teach out of, says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, 16, 9 through 20. And then it says, go read the preface if you want more. The preface doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, It just kind of lumps it in with John 7. And says, you know, who knows about these these texts? The NIV, the earliest manuscripts, and some of the ancient witnesses do not have verses nine through twenty. I think there was a lot of fire when the NIV did this, which it comes out in 1984. And the reason it got a lot of fire was because I think every NIV that I've ever picked up, when it does include verses nine through twenty, it always made it in smaller print and italicized it. So it made sure you saw that they didn't think this was original. (laughs) And again, coming off of the King James background, which is it's authentic in every single way. You can imagine the firestorm that created when the NIV rolls out. And it doesn't just simply say like some footnote, we're not sure about this because the New American Standard, though, it says a footnote and says verses 9 through 20 were added later. It is printed as if it's normal text like everything else in there. There's not a distinction. The NIV shrinks it, italicizes it, and goes, you really don't want to read this. It's really small and hard to read. Uh, So that's what the NIV did with that. Uh, The New Living Translation, which I can argue is not really a translation, but that's a whole other story, but I'll just go ahead and lay it out there. Uh, It's not. It's close. It's kind of a translation, but not all the way. Uh, most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verse 16, with verse 16a. Uh, later manuscripts add one or both of the following endings, and it also will put in there the various endings. Uh, my fa- favorite translation of all time, which I do not preach out of, out of because none of you have it, and because they're very difficult to get, uh, the New Revised Standard Version, it is, does the best with this. Uh, it gives a very long explanation about the whole thing, and then it includes all of the different endings as well. <laughs> and so it gives a very full, all right, well, some manuscripts stop at verse 8. Some have a short ending after that. Some have a long ending after that. Some have a short and a long, and then some have this really weird one that you've never seen before except for in one authority. All right, so what I want to do is kind of show you these five endings. The, the first ending is the one that is pretty well noted in all of your Bibles. We have manuscripts that just stop at the end of verse 8. Well, that's it. There you go. That's it. And the two oldest manuscripts that we have of Mark do not possess anything after verse 8. And there are a bunch of other authorities, other manuscripts that we have. They are not Greek manuscripts, but they are Latin manuscripts, Syriac manuscripts, Armenian manuscripts, along with Georgian manuscripts in Ethiopic version. All of these translations, basically, all these different languages, they also do not have anything past verse 8. So it's not just simply there's two manuscripts that don't have past verse 8. That's inaccurate. It's two... Greek ones that do not, and then we have, if I could count these really fast, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, more than 11, 12 other manuscripts of other languages of, of early times that do not possess those verses 
either. Let me run through this first, and then I can I can take questions. The second ending uh, continues, uh, verse eight, and that's this is what it reads. This is a, a curious one. Then they quickly reported all these instructions to those around Peter. After this, Jesus himself also sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of the eternal salvation. Amen. That's one of the endings that Mark has. So unsatisfied with ending at verse 8, one manuscript has that. (laughs) That's called uh, basically this short ending that that sits all there. Uh, because only one manuscript has it, we go, okay, only one has that. That's, we're going to set that one aside and go, no, I don't think that's going to work. There's a third ending that merges the, in, the short ending that you just read above with verses 9 through 20. So imagine reading through verse 8, then have the short ending there, and then pick up in verse 9 in your Bible and go all the way to verse 20. That's one manuscript has that as a short and the long ending. The long ending is just verses 9 through 20, so it merges both of them. Ending 4 is what you have in the King James. You just went verses 1 through 20 all the way through. That's just called having the long ending. So there's that. Uh, but there is not a single Greek manuscript that we have before the 5th century that possesses verses 9 through 20. So you kind of raise an eyebrow a little bit and go... It's a little bit later down the road that we have these other manuscripts that do possess it. And then ending five, we have even a longer ending. So there is a long ending and then a longer (laughs) ending. And it adds this after verse 14. And they excuse themselves saying the age of this age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the spirit. Therefore, reveal your righteousness now. Thus they spoke to Christ and Christ replied to them. The term of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled, but other terrible things draw near. And for those who have sinned, I was handed over to death that they may return to the truth and sin no more in order that they may inherit the spiritual an incorruptible glory of righteousness that is in heaven. Sounds just like Mark, doesn't it? Everything that we've been reading so far. <laughs> and they go, no. <laughs> so there's the fifth ending, which is even longer. And notice its placement is after verse 14. So the reason why that is useful to consider is you will notice that the manuscript problem has been a long time problem. And I think that's one of the interesting things in trying to determine how we should deal with uh, the ending of, of Mark's gospel. And looking at, you were asking about the church fathers, so I'm going to bring in a lot of them as, and let them weigh in on this, and you will see how indecisive they are. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, and in the parenthesis, those are the dates by which they lived. So to give a sense of, there, here they are with the manuscripts, and what do they say in regards to the gospel of Mark? Origin and at Clement of Alexandria, when they're talking out of the about the Gospel of Mark, they don't show any knowledge of verses nine through twenty at all. So they comment on chapter sixteen. They don't say a word about verses nine through twenty. They don't have any information there. So it is an argument from silence. But they seem to not know about those verses when they're talking about the Gospel of Mark. Similarly. Interesting, Eusebius, who was from the middle 200s to 300s, and Jerome from 342 to 420, 
They state that verses 9 through 20 were absent from almost all Greek copies known to them. Now, the reason that's particularly interesting is not only do they say the Greek copies that we know don't have it, it indicates they already are aware that there is a 9 through 20. That's what's really fascinating. Is So all the way back here, at least from 200 to 300, there's already a divergence in manuscripts and an awareness of a short and a long ending. And that the Greek copies that they know of, almost all of them don't have 9 through 20, but they are aware of its existence and know that such, a, such verses do exist, which is very interesting. So the comfort in this is this is not a modern problem. This is a problem that arises not long after the existence of the Gospel of Mark, that there's going to be a lot of difficulty about this. Jerome said almost all the Greek codices being without this passage. I would highlight the word almost. He must have found at least one that did to say almost. I think that's interesting that he was aware of it. Uh, they also, both of them, note that there is more than one ending even in the, the 5th century. Victor of Antioch, who's in the 5th to the 6th centuries, noted that there were many copies that ended at verse 8 and many copies that ended at verse 20. <laughs> so... Here we are in the five to six hundreds already seeing both of them proliferating, many with short, many with, with long. By contrast, Irenaeus, who lives also like in Clement's time, he refers to the longer ending. So even at the late 100s, he's aware of a long ending that exists. And he seems to quote from the long ending. So again, you're now you're noticing that there's a short ending and a long ending that's already in existence somewhere between the mid-100s to late-100s. There's already two forms of this ending. So, again, not a modern problem. And I think it's useful to see that. Is you recognize that they're already talking about it. When you have Eusebius and Jerome talking about it, <laughs> they're already trying to figure out themselves living in the two to three hundreds, which one's the right one? <laughs> they already are struggling with that. And that struggle has, has then continued on uh, even to, to this very day. Okay, uh, that's a good stop point for me for the moment. Questions up to this point, Debbie? A commentary that I, I read uh, brought up a point that we've talked about. Um, and that is And I will talk about that, yes. So that's one of the internal evidences. We'll talk about external and internal evidences here in a moment. What is the evidence for and against its authenticity based on the manuscripts? And then what are the arguments for and against it based on what it actually says? And that is one of the things. Charlotte? We don't know. Yeah, there's. I haven't read anything that says they had any way in one way or the other. Muriel. Does this study show uh, where the manuscripts were uh, copied? Whether, you know, in what region does it compare? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so when you say Alexandrian, you are talking about then Egypt or um, Holy Land area. If you read about Byzantine text types, now you're moving to Turkey and Western Europe more. So, so the ones that have 
In terms of the Greek manuscripts, the ones that do not possess it are Alexandrian, and the ones that do possess it that are Greek are Byzantine. So there is a distinction in that. The reason that's not very definitive is because the Alexandrian text types and manuscripts are all very early, and the Byzantine ones are all very late. So unfortunately, we don't have Byzantine in the 200s. Byzantine is in, you know, more like 900 to 1500 AD, much later. But we don't have Alexandrian in 1500s. We only have them in 100, 200, and 300 AD. So it's interesting the geography does dictate it, but unfortunately the dates don't overlap to help us with that. It may be simply the Byzantine or later, and that's what kind of won the day in the copying by the, by the scribes. Yep. In general, in scholarship, not, not just this, but what's the rule? Is there a rule of thumb that says, you know what, the earlier, yes. the more accurate, or the later? Because yep. maybe the, the earlier, maybe the, the scroll got flipped off. So. Right, and that's one thing we'll even talk about, too. Uh, there are a few rules uh, with, with crit- it's called critical, uh, I just lost it. Uh, but anyway, you're, you're, it's uh, textual criticism. That's what it is. Uh, oldest is considered best. You know, it's all things being equal. So you know, at the end of the day, if everything else is equal in terms of your information, then your older one is best because it's closer to the original date. So that's logical. You know, if you've got a 181 and a 981, and you only have two documents, I'd go with the 181. That's just kind of the way you do that. Uh, another rule is it's more likely that something is added than omitted because on a scroll it is very unusual and difficult to subtract something it is a lot easier at the end of something to write a bunch more than it is to take something back out and somebody not catch that so typically shorter endings are better more difficult ending or more difficult wording is also considered better. It's much more likely that a scribe might make a word easier to understand than make it more difficult to understand. <laughs> so you're kind of playing the game like that. You know, if it's a, a distinction like, like Jude is one of those where some manuscripts say that the Lord brought the uh, Israel out of Egypt. I think it's Jude 4. If you, and then some manuscripts say Jesus did. Which one's the harder reading to interpret? Jesus is. Explaining how Jesus brought them out of Egypt is the harder one, which is probably the more likely reading then, because, it, you know, saying the Lord brought him out of Egypt, everybody's okay with that. Who, why would a scribe change that to Jesus? That, who would do that? <laughs> but having Jesus changing it to Lord, you could see somebody going, the scribe before me must have messed that up. That couldn't have said Jesus. Jesus wasn't even around back then, so Lord. So there are a lot of rules at play when it comes to that, that, that scholars use to try to determine those. And you, unfortunately, there's not just one rule. You're putting all these rules on the table, and, and sometimes they interact with each other in difficult, in difficult ways. Uh, oh, this is, this is fun. Yep. Well, 
his, his writings that he, that the copies of his writings that we have say that. All right, so that moves it all the way back to the biggest period. It does. And so all the rest of it happens. So, so where we start is, is where we've got the validity of something. Yeah. So that's well, how I, you know, I'm going to sort of like that. Yeah, well, the, so you just mean we have the two oldest manuscripts, and the two oldest manuscripts don't have it, and that settles the day? No, I'm saying just the opposite. Okay. I'm saying that our agents, yeah. that, he, that he's before them, and that he's had it. And he saw okay, it. So he had something he read from yeah. that had it. Yeah. He wasn't inspired. Yeah. But so saw that's it. where we start. Okay. Yep. No, I think I think he's waiting. That he's aware of it, and that's what's interesting. Is it seems that most guys are aware of it. It being, in fact, if I kind of go backward, I think it's yeah, I think it's pretty interesting that these two guys don't seem to have awareness of it, since these guys do. <laughs> so again, that's why I said it's kind of an argument of silence. Maybe they're aware of it. Maybe they're not. But it's interesting that they don't know. But you know, at the, at the end of the day. I think it's useful just to see that in, not long after Irenaeus, they're recognizing that there's an awful lot of different manuscripts uh, in these running, running around. Isn't that son not Yeah, Sinaticus. Yeah. yeah. It's a fragment, as I understand, no, it, no, it's not a fragment. It's one of the codexes, one of the few complete codexes we have. Of the Bible, same with Vaticanus. That's why they're considered valuable. I believe so. Yeah, that's why God's named that. Yeah. In fact, so I actually made a scan of it for you, uh, and the reason why I wanted to do that is because sometimes what is argued to speak against these codexes is say, "Well, look at all." I'm going to try this new technique. Let's see how this goes. Oh, cool. Uh, look at all this white space over here. So what happened is he decide, he knew there was a longer ending here. What you're seeing in that glow is actually the backside of the paper where the rest of the Bible is kind of like on your Bible. You get to show through uh, when you see through the other side. So that's actually the other side of the paper. Uh, and so he knew that he left that spacer because he knew it was there, but he didn't want it in there. And so he took it out. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't work. Number one, I think this is really interesting. Sometimes uh, this is missed. The, the scribes would do these little <coughs> markers. Notice how it kind of walls off the text. And the reason why is to show that is the end. And so that anything that gets written after it is not correct. And in fact, that says that's the Gospel of Mark uh, at the ending right there, according to Mark. So this indicates to him that's the end of the gospel right there. Uh, the space here then becomes not relevant, even though sometimes that's used as an argument that if you took out the, uh, according to Mark, you could fit verses 9 through 20 right on there and see that, and they try to impugn the scribe. And there's no reason to do that. This is pretty common. Uh, you'll see this in Vaticanus as well. These older manuscripts, all of them do this. He has this marker at the end of all of his books. He does that. So this is not trying to do anything special, but he's just trying to show you that's the end of, of that, that gospel. You'll notice back then Vaticanus does the same. You can really see the demarcation here. Notice what he call kind of a, a wall right there. He's 
That's the end right there. There's according to Mark right there. And notice he has Luke starting right here. And so that's how those manuscripts look. <laughs> it's so interesting that there's a lot of arguments made about, well, if you fit, there's no way to fit verses 9 through 20 in that one. Not with the spacing by which he wrote in that prior uh, column there. You cannot fit it in there. So he's not giving any space whatsoever. So neither of them, whoever these scribes are, and again, these date to the 4th century. These are the oldest Greek Bibles, codexes, uh, that we have that possess the vast majority of scriptures. And that's why they're considered very weighty. Uh, other things that we have that are have all of the, main, have all the books of the Bible uh, all come much later. So in taking the external evidences, it's kind of up to you to decide what do you think is more likely. Did the scribes add endings to a seemingly abrupt ending? You know, so think of it like this. What is more logical? That the original gospel ends at verse 8. And because that is very sudden and doesn't have the resurrection appearances or anything like that. That later scribes added four different endings. 9 through 20. The short ending. The short and long ending. And the longer ending that we've already looked at. You know, so they come along and add, add to it. Or is it more likely that the scribes removed the longer ending to make the abrupt ending? That is, they had verses 9 through 20. And a bunch of them sat down and said, we don't think this works. And so some of them did only to verse 8. Some of them did verse 8 and the short ending. Some of them did verse 8 and the longer ending <laughs> and then some of the short and the longer ending. That's kind of what, where, why the vast majority of scholars in asking this question right here land on is far more likely that scribes added things later than it is to say that they all took turns subtracting different things. That would be far, far more difficult to, to consider. And so multiple endings are more easily explained by the original being shorter than it is to explain all the endings with the original being longer. If you go all the way to verse 20, then, well, why do we have only one that goes to verse 8? Why would you have one that has a short ending? Why would you have one that's a short and a long? See, that's the questions that, that you ask and just in terms of external evidences. You know, it makes more sense to me if you just look at it on as many as the scribe who's read the other ones would think, well, there's something wrong that this, these verses should have been added to to make it sound like have, have an ending like the others would right. Which when you read the first eight verses, and if you think about our Sunday morning lesson, doesn't verse eight seem abrupt? And they went out and fled from the tomb and for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. We have no resurrection appearance, <laughs> you know, where Luke and Matthew do and John also does. Mark seems out of place. If you're coming along and you get to verse 8, you go, the women saw the tomb, and notice there's not even an exoneration. There's not even like, and they went about proclaiming the gospel of how Jesus rose from the dead. It's somewhat negative. 
They went out from the tomb and, fl- and fled, trembling and astonished, and they said nothing to anyone. That's like the opposite of a gospel ending, right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You, you did the opposite. You were afraid and said nothing. So it just feels so wrong right there. So to me, I can see the short ending causing a dilemma for scribes going, uh, how can that be the end? And we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit, well, Debbie. Not, not only, you know, it says that they said nothing, but every, all the other Gospels say that they went and told the other Apostles. Yep. So... In some ways, right? So there must be some more to explain that, right? Because <laughs> you can imagine if you're a, a a good, dutiful scribe and you've written these things out so many times and you know how Matthew ends and you know how Luke ends and this just, you know, where is the resurrection appearance? Him showing himself to somebody. It's, it's not there. And I think that's where a lot of the problem really lies is it just seems to quit at the last second. Miriam? What if this, this fellow begin with I and Arrhenius? yep. If, if he knew about the long ending, isn't that long before the Sinaiticus and the Vatican? Before this, those two documents, yes. <laughs> yep. So we have documents after him that have short endings. But he is aware of a long ending. So that's kind of my point, is that this has been a long-time problem. But he seems to be aware of both. He's not just aware of one. Well, he's, Irenaeus is aware of the long. That's all he seems to speak from. So when we put that on, that's all. He doesn't. We don't have anything that says that he knows of anything being short. So that's what's interesting. But then Clement, who's not long right after him, turns around and doesn't know anything about the long and only knows of the short. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So it's difficult. Lots of hands. Here we go, Charlotte. Do we, do we believe that Mark was the first uh, I will answer that later, but I say no. Okay. I don't think so. Even though that is the long scholarly belief, I, after studying this, I don't think there's much of a chance this is the, the oldest gospel. So, Dan? We have to also be careful here. We can't just say, well, this couldn't be the end of it. All the Gospels were written to different audiences. That's right. So, so just to say, well, he doesn't match the other, none yeah. of them match perfectly. That's true. Together. Yeah. So you can't just, I don't know that that on its own would be good enough to say. I would agree. I think it's, a, it's important for us to be able to recognize that, as we've done with the Gospels when we've studied them, they say what they say for a reason. I mean, think about Mark's Gospel the person in the tomb when the women come is not described as an angel but a young man you know so should we get bent out of shape about that you know that's completely different because one has one angel and the other has two and mark goes that's a young man so there's a reason behind those things and i think that's important to keep in mind that we shouldn't be disturbed just because well it doesn't match up like the other uh other gospels um this is my question, I think is important. If the long ending is original, why are there so many alternate endings? Because there's nothing in verses 9 through 20 that you can read there, we'll read it in just a minute, that you would say, well, we need to get rid of that. That's heresy. <laughs> you know, Where's the big problem in 9 through 20? The scribes read that and go, we need to get that out of here. 
if anything, it's kind of the opposite. You remember that short ending that has, you know, the, the gospel of the kingdom and all these, these very much um, church-sounding words? <laughs> you notice the scribes liked that, those kinds of things. They would have liked, you know, believe, be baptized, and be saved. I mean, that's why you have... Uh, the addition in the Western text in Acts eight thirty seven, and they both went down. Or not to both down Lord. He was. Uh, do you believe that believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Oh, they loved those things. Those were always put in there. That's why all of our modern translations have taken that out because almost none of the manuscripts have that. That's, those were things that were easily added in because they like those kinds of baptismal, confessional, repentant kind of formulas. And so Mark, the ending of Mark has one of those formulas. Uh, so there would not have been anything disturbing in that to go, well, we need to get that out of here, Ed. I mean, two things. One, since we have someone uh, that has, he was inspired, but has authority and continuity, and would be fairly close to those that may have even lived in association with you said he was in the 30s so you know, there may have been some of those that were still alive yep. so, Maybe. so we yeah, I don't know that maybe, but, uh, but not, not so much so there's some possibility there. okay set that aside but there was that information and it was available mm-hmm. and it was available to him from somewhere somewhere yep from somewhere now, when the strife for good, and I've read, you read probably much, much more, but I've read the diligence and the study and the matching letters and counting columns and all that yes. to reassure you. They were very careful, yes. But if there is a mistake, and it's a mistake at a center of learning, mm-hmm. a mistake where it's a, a very highly exalted place and then it's going to be going to be just exploding out and it will have it will have multitude copies of that mistake because of the source yep. of the mistake. Yep. That's so those are the two things that I see that are really most probable in my perspective, most probable that what we have is accurate to Okay. Very good. Debbie? Yeah, well, let's let's do that. Let's 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 go to internal evidences. <laughs> um, I have to rely upon Greek scholars because I am not one, and I did not sleep at a Holiday Inn Express, so I don't <laughs> pretend that I know Greek in any means whatsoever, and I have to depend upon them. But there is a very high percentage of non-Mark vocabulary in verses nine through twenty, as well as the Greek style is completely. Different. There are words that Mark does not use uh, in his whole gospel that are found in verses 9 through 20. And not only that, there is, according to the scholars, a dramatic style difference. And those things are real, just as much as uh, the gospel of John is a simplistic uh, style of Greek. That's why all first-year Greek students translate the gospel of John, because it is simple style. So there, even an English language has that, you know, what you give to a kindergartner is a different English style than something that's Shakespearean. 
So Greek is the same way, is that there are different styles. And they observe that when you come to this section, the style is not like what you see in the language wording nor style of the earlier gospel. Verse 9 is one point that everybody jumps on with Greek scholars, and I think it's worthy of consideration. Look at Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now, when he arose early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, of whom he had cast out seven demons. There's a real problem with that because, uh, let me see if I've got that right there. Yeah. She's been stated three times in the last just couple of verses. She's back in verse 1, and she's also in the death scene of Jesus. It is highly unusual to speak of Mary Magdalene three times in a paragraph, and at the end of the paragraph, the fourth time, then say, oh, by the way, she was the one who had seven demons cast out of her. You would have said that the first time when you introduced her in this section not at the end. So scholars really come in on verse 9 as as being a a, a dramatic problem. Verse 9 also lacks a pronoun reference, which is really odd as well. You will notice that we are not talking about Jesus in verse 8. Who are we talking about? The women. And so the next sentence to be he has no reference point. And so they look to that and go... It should have said the Lord, Christ, Jesus. There should have been a name for which the pronoun would be tied to. So again, another indicator that this is something later on, because you just start saying he, there's no reference to a he to be able to use. Uh, Debbie's bringing up verse 18. Let's look at verse 18, because verse 18 has also driven me nuts in my life. Let's start in, well, let's just start in verse 16 so we get the whole flow of it. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will pick up, uh, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will lay the hands on the sick and they will recover. I remember when we used to, all ten of you who were here a long time ago, remember we had the radio show? (laughs) I remember having somebody call in, I used Mark 16, and they beat me like a red-headed stepchild with verses 17 and 18. (laughs) Because it says, and those who believe, well, what was, that's coming right off of 16. I cannot make 17 refer only to the apostles if verse 16 is everyone who believes will be saved. And this are the, these are the signs that will accompany those who believe. And I mean, he tore me up and down on that thing. And I tried to dance and squirm and do everything I could to get out of that. But I couldn't get out of it. That is what it says. If it's all those who believe, here's the signs that's going to accompany them. Uh, there are two problems with that. Uh, two, the two things of verse eight, 18. Uh, picking up, going around picking up snakes. It seems to be a kissing cousin to when a viper snaps onto Paul's hand out of the fire. But nowhere do we have apostles walking around going, hey, everybody, I'm going to show you a sign of my apostleship. I'm going to pick up the snake. Same also with the drinking anything deadly line. 
where do we see any idea of that? So that is the internal evidence issues, uh, is that the, the gospel doesn't present anything like the things that, that, that are described here. Uh, verse 19, re- notice how different this sounds. We've just gone through the gospel of Mark. See if this sounds right. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's not been anything we've talked about in this gospel. He is not anywhere in the gospel said he's going to go sit down at the right hand of God so that this ending would now be appropriate to say, okay, now he did exactly as he taught. You probably know where that comes from. That's Acts 2 is where that's coming from. That's being plugged in right there. That's not befitting what the gospel has said. If I could go back to Mark 1 where Jesus is preaching the arrival of the kingdom and say, and when he spoke about those things, he talked about sitting at the right hand of God, that would work. But that phrase is not in the gospel of Mark. And so it is a strange ending to say that's what he did. He sat down the right hand of God when we haven't promised that or seen that stated anywhere in Mark's gospel. There are a lot of things if you, I don't have the time, but if you went through verses 9 through 20, everything can be pointed to out of another text. It either comes from Luke or Matthew or John or Acts. Every single one except drinking deadly poison. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> that one is a little bit different, George. <laughs> my, my understanding was always that these scribes and scholars, if they even messed up one letter, they would rip up the scrolls because that was the start over. Yep. So what kind of what kind of scribes do we have here that are adding entire paragraphs and different versions of that? that, that don't they realize the gravity of what they're doing? Do they that that? Exactly. The big issue is this. The ending at verse 8 is problematic. It is an abrupt running into a wall in the middle, at the end of the gospel account. But so is the, the end of Acts, right? Everybody wants to know what happened yeah. Paul. One of the most popular positions that a lot of scholars take is that there was more and we just don't have it. Now, I'm not in that camp. Because I'm a believer in the miraculous maintenance of the scriptures and that God was going to preserve his word one way or another. But this is a very favorable position that comes out is basically it got the where it is in the codex very easily could have been torn off. And that's why it stops at verse eight so that the scribes, you know, weren't messing around with it. They were realizing something's wrong with it. And then they're attempting to, to do it. Some scholars say Mark never got to finish. I also, in the inspiration of the scriptures and the high view of God and his word, do not agree with that point of view either, that, well, it's just too bad it didn't work out. My angle is purposeful abruptness, is that it stops hard for a reason. Now, if we believe that Mark is the first gospel, that's a problem. That is a huge problem. The purposeful abruptness does not work I don't think, if Mark is the first gospel, because you don't have a resurrection appearance. It's very... But, if everybody already knows Matthew and Luke, I don't need a resurrection appearance. I can do theology rather than a proof. You know, Matthew's gospel is all about the proofs. It's got the guards and the ceiling of the tomb. It's very much uh, an apologetic of an empty tomb 
resurrection point of view. When we say those first eight verses of Mark, it's not attempting that at all. It doesn't have that concern. We don't hear about securing guards and securing tombs and any of that kind of business whatsoever. We're not concerned with it. So if Mark's the first gospel, it's problematic. But if it's a later gospel, I think it presumes knowledge. Uh, in fact, I, often what the scholars have done is they have made this very simple statement. Since Mark is the shortest of the four, it must be the earliest. Why? I go the other way around and go, maybe Matthew and Luke are so well known, we don't have to keep restating all of those things. That this is later than what you think it really was. Because they're also the ones that come up with Q. You know, the, the, and if you know what Q is, it's this hypothetical document that exists of all the sayings of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all borrowed from into their various gospel writings, and that's why they're so different. Which, again, just denies inspiration in my point of view, and I don't think there is a Q. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's different gospels for different reasons. And what you're bringing up is why I'm clicking through this. This is not the only book that has an abrupt ending. And I mentioned that in the lesson. Acts does. Paul's in prison. And it stops. <laughs> and you go, well, where's chapter 29? We don't have it. Very abrupt. So that's not unusual to say, well, this doesn't finish the story very well. Well, this isn't the only book to do that, Jim. But Acts ends, yes, he's in prison, but it ends positive. This ends with us looking Back. Yep. Do you see what I'm saying? If they're a script, it looks bad for man because they left the fright. Yep. And so I see that then I feel like I need to say, right. but look what they did do. They exactly. Left the but Acts, God, yeah. you know, he's he's still preaching, he's in prison, but he's still proclaiming the word. You can make a positive yeah. thought process Agreed. out of it. You can't positively think about what's happening in me. I agree. And that's where I think the theology of Mark is really important. I tried to quickly do a reminder of it in the morning lesson. It gives me a chance here to talk about it. Remember, in Mark's gospel, the disciples of Jesus are constantly painted poorly. They are always amazed and do not believe. They have fear and do not believe. They are chastised for a lack of belief. They are never given the, wow, what great faith you have. Not in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel constantly is, why are you afraid? Don't you know about the loaves? Don't you know what that miracle means? Jesus is constantly hitting them. In fact, we noted that there are people in the gospel like the woman with the flow of blood and like Jairus who exhibit a greater faith in the disciples. So it may not be that unusual to end this with a negative tone on the disciples because they have been given a negative tone all throughout the gospel. Yep. Right. When you have the prophets, and I remember if I, I tied Mark to the to Isaiah as the connect gospel, and Isaiah ends with a tremendous negativity, which those are the very words that Jesus quotes for a picture of hell in Isaiah 66 of, of a judgment kind of imagery. 
that I think Mark is putting a very strong pointed focus. What will you do with the information? Will you have faith or will you have fear? That's the track of what the gospel has done. And that's what I tried to present to you Sunday morning was to give you a sense of this is what it's constantly done is shown how amazement and fear are either causes for great faith or causes for turning away and failing. And it's pictured again and again and again and again. Disciples fail in faith. Woman has great faith. Jairus has great faith. These disciples fail again. Over, you know, like when we did, remember we did in Mark's gospel, we have the feeding of the 5,000, then we have the feeding of the 4,000. And the disciples act the exact same way with the feeding of the 4,000 that they do the 5,000. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus kills them for it. Like, <laughs> and he says, because of your hardness of heart. I mean, he doesn't go, well, you know, you guys should have seen. I mean, he, he, he lays into them for their lack of faith and knowledge. So I'm not terribly surprised to be able to end on verse 8 and go, so now what? Here's your fear. You're going out in amazement. And what's going to happen? It's not as unusual as it may seem now that you've kind of gone through the gospel. Whereas if you are comparing Mark to Matthew, Luke, and John, it is really abrupt. It doesn't match them at all which would maybe be the catalyst for scribes to come along and go, well, we need to at least wrap this up with a positive ending. You know, it needs to say we all lived happily ever after, which is what the short ending, the long ending, the short and the long endings all, when they're combined, all end up doing. Yes, absolutely, absolutely does. Ed. So was, is it Arminius? Was he uh, at a later time? I mean, did we actually have, or are we not just uh, Because the critics, the, the theological critics, will say anything about you that fits, basically fits their theology story all that sort of bits. But here we have someone that is fairly close, the closest that we have, mm-hmm. as far as I saw, the closest yep. that we have. Here's the text. Yep. And then we have some that are subsequent to that that don't have yep. that. But my perspective would be, I'm the one with the early one, because I could probably help explain some of these later ones not having the text. And and to go and say, well, they didn't have the the phrasing was different and and the words were structured different. And and the whole emotion was different. I mean, the whole sensation of what was happening was different. That's how I would sort of approach it. Very likely, where else? I don't even remember it saying that. No, the point is that because she was identified earlier in the paragraph, such information would have been given sooner rather than later. I think that was a crucial time to say that when she was the one to verify. To me, that was more significant to say, yes, 
here's this woman that was under the dominion of Satan who has now testified that Christ. No, I, I, I think I. That's fine. I, I have no problem with that because I believed that for uh, all my life. So I have no problem with that point of view. So, uh, Yes, and I wish he quoted 9 through 20 because if he did, that would be more weighty to me. He just simply alludes to one of the verses, which indicates an awareness of it. Uh, but he doesn't write down all verses 9 through 20 and go, Here's, here, here it is. But he seems to be aware of something in there. Uh, so that's why he's given, he's given the credit. I'm really out of time. Let me get some more people in with a hand here. Yeah, no? I thought I saw him. But there, was... there are numerous other passages in the Bible where we will see these the connotations. Yeah. This was not in the original. Yes. Um, so the question is, is, is this the most controversial? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This one's probably the worst uh, of any of them. Most of the other ones are, are cleaner. The second most difficult is the John seven fifty three to eight eleven. With the uh, sinful woman uh, scene, you can go read about that. That one is a little complicated, but to me, that one's a little bit easier. Uh, when I taught through John, I, I said, I believe it's authentic, but it doesn't necessarily seem that it was right there in John's gospel. We have manuscripts with it placed in a lot of different places. So it seems to be a floating story that seems to be true because it's in all the manuscripts. But it's not all in the same place in all of the manuscripts. So does it belong right there? I don't know, but it seems to be authentic. This one is far more difficult. When your oldest manuscripts do not have it, when we have well over a dozen different manuscripts of different languages not possessing it, and they are all the oldest, that's weighty. Then when I read all the Shirley Church Fathers all say different things. Some seem they had it, and some said we don't have it. Some said, I see both. <laughs> it seems like it was a very early problem, uh, right out of the gate. Whatever happened to Mark's gospel out of the gate seems to happen to have happened very quickly. Uh, and so it led to all the variants that you're seeing in that text. To me, the elephant in the room is, if you take them out, what, what, how does that affect my faith? doesn't affect anything if you take them out. It doesn't affect anything if you leave them in, unless you're going to go pick up snakes and drink deadly poison, which some people do, and I would not advise that. <laughs> but unfortunately, because verse 16 says, all who believe, so verse 17, then these are the signs that will accompany those who believe. Uh, it's very hard to get around that. I think verses 17 and 18 are a tremendous challenge, and I do think verse 19 equally. That would be probably the two weighty things that changed my mind where, from where I was to start off with, was the contents of verses 17 through 19 do not fit Mark's gospel at all, and that kind of resonated to me. And then being able to really look at the manuscripts myself and see this is not an unusual thing. It's not some kind of ripping out of the text or anything like that. Seems logical that it would not be there, George. How, how do you score that then with your belief? And I think probably everybody in this room has the same belief that, that God preserves his word. 
right? That he did. And, and he did. Yep. But yet, we've got this big question that's been since the beginning. Yeah. But we have, you know, again, this this goes back to we have all kinds of we have thousands of variants between the manuscripts. But at the end of the day, when you start realizing that you subtract out spelling errors and transposed words and things like that, you end up with only 50 significant spots where there is a distinction between manuscripts. There's only 50. That's quite impressive for the kind of antiquity we're dealing with in terms of the, these manuscripts. There's only 50 spots. This is one of them. John's one of them. Acts 8.37 is one of them. And the whole point is that even in those 50 spots, if you have it, there's nothing in there that changes what you do or believe. And if you don't have it, it doesn't change anything we do or believe. Losing Mark 16, 16 is not affected. We have Matthew 28 just as equally saying, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them, name Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, you know, we don't lose baptism or something like that. So I, I, I believe in the preservation that God kept with it, but uh, obviously we have a lot. The, 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 it's the value of having lots of manuscripts. We have over 5,000 New Testaments of antiquity. So there's going to be a little distinctions along the way, but you have full confidence in what you hold in your hands. Real quick, I'm out of time. Yeah, yeah. It is short. But, you know, I think there is, there is truth to the fact that theologically and doctrinally in my faith, it may or may not make a difference. But I think the conversation is valuable simply because we're all still trying to speak to the oracles of God. Yep. And the only way we can do that is if we know what the oracles of God are. Yep. So I think it is important that even in these situations we look at it and you know, wherever you come down, believe it or not, but to be passionate to really believe that it does or doesn't belong there. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the Mark series ends with last Sunday morning, because at this point, I do not think it's authentic. But I may change my mind again in 14 years, do this class all over again, and argue why it is, because I did that. 14 years ago. <laughs> so I'm very very much willing to be wrong on this and then turn around and preach Mark through Mark again in a couple of decades and go, wait, wait, I was wrong back then. And we have more manuscript evidence at that time and that maybe will, will help us out. 